The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Well, welcome, Mary Jo. It's nice to have you back. I think this is maybe the third or fourth time that you've come to the center to speak. So it's great to have Mary Jo here. Some of you know Mary Jo, some of you haven't met her before, but she taught for a long time at Mankato State University in the Psychology and Religious Studies Department and has been involved in spiritual practice meditation for 45 years, both in the Catholic but uh, also in the Buddhist tradition, and has been leading retreats for at least one decade and maybe longer. Um, and there are retreats that combine the teachings in the Catholic Church, especially related to uh, St. John, and also the Vipassana tradition where Mary John has practiced a long time. And I've heard once how many three-month retreats you did in a row. Was it ten in a row? Ten in a row. Yeah. Ten of the, every fall at IMS they do a three-month retreat. And Mary John no, wait, it was twelve. A lot of them. <laughs> and tonight, Mary Jo is going to speak on the perfections of the Buddha, which uh, it's a list that the Buddha, or that's used in the Buddhist tradition, called the Paramis, and the fruits of the Holy Spirit, a Buddhist Christian exploration. So um, we have some of Mary Jo's flyers downstairs. I'll bring them up before the end of the evening if you're interested in finding out more about the retreats that she leads here and elsewhere around the country. And, Scotland. She just came back. Just from got Korea. back from Scotland, yes. So thanks, Mary Jo, for coming. Well, as Mark said, for those of you who don't know me yet, I'll explain a little bit more. That I, I, I'm extremely intrigued. I was both as a university professor and also as a spiritual practitioner of the places where you can find meshing between traditions where they seem to be saying about the same thing but using different language for it. And most of the retreats, although I do lead some straight Buddha Dhamma retreats, most of the retreats that I lead, um, they teach the straight Vipassana insight practice, but the talks tie, show the relationships between Christian and Buddhist themes. And as Mark also said, I rely very heavily on Christian mystic John of the Cross, whom Thomas Merton, somebody that most people, I think, have heard about, uh, said, uh, John of the Cross is just Buddhism. Sure, if you sure hit it, if you took away the Christian language, John of the Cross is Buddhism, and um, I believe that's true. Some of you heard my daughter Rebecca Bradshaw speak a few months ago, and when I gave Rebecca John of the Cross to read, she had the book barely half an hour and came back, Mom, this is Dhamma, this is Dhamma. And I said, Yes, it's it's Dhamma. So. The theme I'm doing tonight is not just one from John, it's more from the Christian scriptures, but I illustrate it with some comments from John and from Teresa of Avila, who was his um, co-Carmelite. And a little bit about the, the word parami and about the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which are the two sets of attributes or virtues or qualities that we can develop. Um, it's said of the Buddha uh, before he became the Buddha 
that he spent many lifetimes perfecting these qualities called the paramis, or perfections of the Buddha. Some of you might be more familiar with the term paramita. Some Buddhist traditions call them paramitas, and they list just six. And the Theravadan tradition from which I teach lists ten of them and calls them the paramis. But it's the, the same set of these virtues that the Buddha-to-be spent many lifetimes developing. And there are fascinating little stories in the Jataka tales, the birth stories of the Buddha's previous lives leading up to the time when he became the Buddha, that describe how each of these virtues was being developed um, in the circumstances in which he found himself. And some of these were as animal forms of life as well as human. And it makes a great read if you're interested in reading anything of, of that sort. Um, in one, he threw himself over a cliff to feed a hungry mother lioness who couldn't feed her cubs and so this was an act of generosity to give him the meat of her body to have to feed her babies so just little things like that now these paramis are also set before all buddhists as qualities that they too need to work at acquiring and um, there's lore that when the paramis have been developed to a certain extent in us, then the teachings of meditation come to us so that we can speed our spiritual work more quickly. So this saying would suggest that any of us who have had the practice come to us already have some development of the paramis before it comes because they're like a precondition for the teachings to come, but then a further task for us to work on and refine. Although, of course, nobody reaches the heroic perfection of them that a Buddha does. Nobody else does, that is. So each person who learns the practice has earned the right to have it by the developed paramis. Now, there's a list in the Christian tradition called the Fruits of the Holy Spirit, which are very, very much like the paramis. And um, after St. Paul warned the Galatian people of a whole long list of bad behaviors, and he said, if you do these, you're not walking in the Spirit, then he gave a list of qualities called the fruits of the Spirit, and he said, if you do these things, you know you're walking in the Spirit. They also were a precondition to consider yourself in the spirit walking on the path and then a task to further develop so in that way the paramis and the fruits are very similar to each other now these fruits of the spirit are variously translated and sometimes even different numbers of them are given um, Galatians, the scripture Galatians lists a core nine of them um, with some alternate translations and they are love or charity, joy, peace, patience or long-suffering, kindness or gentleness, and goodness. Now, They say of these fruits of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit actually guides one in developing them and that the more one listens to the voice of the Holy Spirit guiding them, the more these fruits will develop in them. 
um, there's a parallel notion in the Buddhist tradition, um, which is called the moja, or the essence of Dhamma. Um, I don't. I could probably assume that you're all familiar with the term Dhamma, but I'll take just a moment with it. Um, a rather complex word. It's the way, the path, the practice, the teachings, reality with a capital R, truth with a capital T, that which supports and upholds us. Um, it's, it's a very, very rich word, and it's used with these various meanings at different times. The, it comes from a root that literally means support, but it has all of these other meanings. Uh, for those of you who are somewhat familiar with the Christian tradition, which is probably a number of you, it, it might sound to you like it's the notion of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit wrapped up into one concept, and it's really pretty much like the Word of God and the Holy Spirit wrapped up into one concept. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a saying that what Damoja, or the essence of Dhamma, is, is the force of the accumulated purity of heart that we've developed by developing these paramis. And Damoja will prompt us to further good behavior and good choices, and the more we listen to Damoja, that force of goodness already developed in us, the more it prompts us to even greater goodness. So we have a parallel also between these the promptings of the Holy Spirit in the Christian tradition, uh, which is referred to as the indwelling Holy Spirit often, and the demoja, the goodness developed in our hearts, and both of them, if we listen to push us toward greater development of either the fruits of the Holy Spirit or the paramis, and um, guide us uh, further down the path. Now, there's a way in which um, you can think of this guidance, a term that Christian use, Christians use is grace. And I've had many people say things to me, well, the big stumbling block between integrating Buddhist and, and Christian understandings is the concept of grace. Um, it's very, very important to Christians, and Buddhists don't have a concept like grace. And I tell them, you know, the problem is we have to be careful not to get caught in our concepts or our, our explanatory ideas. And if you look at the level of experience, it's very easy to find instances in Buddhist practice that Christians would call grace. And I'm just going to give you two of them from my own experience. We're, we're later, we're going to compare the paramis and fruits more. That's coming. But they, this question of grace is one that underlies the discussion in a way. And so I'm going to give you two things from my own practice. The, the first of these three-month retreats to which Mark referred um, I'm listening to Joseph Goldstein, who's giving the, the typical spiel, you have to do this work, it's up to you, nobody can do this work for you, you have to do your practice and purify your mind and, and so forth. And um, one point I went in for interview with him and I told him, I have a problem, Joseph, because my experience isn't fitting something you're teaching. Well, of course, experience is the final arbiter. So Joseph said, well, what's, what's the problem? Tell me. And I said, well, you know, you have all this. You've got to do it for yourself. It's up to you. No one can do it for you. And I said, 
I have never felt more carried in my entire life. And he just smiled and he said, oh yes, once you start to experience the unfolding of the Dhamma, they're both true. Now, Christians would call that experience of feeling carried in your spiritual practice grace. No concept of grace in Buddhism, but I certainly experienced it in that retreat when I started just feeling carried. Another story has to do with my born-again brother-in-law. I have a born-again sister and brother-in-law. And um, they're very concerned about my spiritual health, of course, as you might expect, um, because I consort with pagans. Um, but um, at one point, he was trying to explain to me how Jesus Christ had convicted him of sin in his heart. And I said, well, well tell me just exactly what you experienced. And he said, I told you, I was given this big grace. Jesus Christ convicted me of sin in my heart. And I said, well... Yeah, but what did you experience? And he could just repeat his explanation of what he had experienced. So I told him a story from, from again, my, my first retreat. Um, I noticed that the man in front of me in the, in the meditation hall was moving around a good bit and shifting position. And the thought came to me, ah, oh, he must be uncomfortable. He must be suffering. And then an odd sort of glee started coming up inside of me, and I was puzzled for a second. And then I remembered that a few days ago, this man had done something that had really annoyed me. And all of a sudden, it crashed in. I'm enjoying the discomfort of somebody who previously did something to annoy me. And I felt my cheeks get hot with shame, and tears started running down my cheeks, and there was actual pain in my heart, literal pain in my heart. And I felt a strong revulsion to being so trapped in, in such a way that I would rejoice over someone else's suffering. And uh, tense remorse rolling through me. So I turned to my born-again brother-in-law, and I said, well... Did you experience anything like that when Jesus Christ convicted you of sin in your heart? He said, you're talking about feelings you had when you were doing a pagan practice. I'm talking about a grace I got. What happened to me was Jesus Christ convicted me of sin in my heart. So he never got anywhere down to what he experienced at all. So he got trapped in the concepts. As long as we stay trapped in concepts, we have a lot of trouble finding parallels between the traditions. If you get to the level of what happens when you're parked on your meditation cushion and the kind of experiences you have, certainly had a Christian had that exact experience that I had, they probably would have said, Jesus Christ convicted me of sin in my heart. Um, it's, it's, you've got to look at the experience, not at the interpretation. And then the whole question of, of whether what Christians call grace can be experienced in Buddhist practice, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Of course, we have, when we do our practice, we have some of those experiences that Christians would call grace. When we can only speak in terms of our concepts, um, we're trapped. What does it matter if we call something the prompting of the Holy Spirit or the prompting of Demoja? Same difference, that urge to make the right choice, to 
develop the virtue a little bit more. Someone once asked Joseph at one of the retreats I attended, there's so many words, God, Nibbana, the Brahman, um, how do I know what it is if I have a, the big experience? And Joseph just smiled and said, it doesn't matter what you call it. What matters is that you have it. You know? um, so anyhow, now I'm going to, having laid that preliminary discussion of grace, because that's very much what Christians consider the prompting of the Holy Spirit to be, and drawn the analog to the Buddhist emoji, now we're going to look at these parmies and, and fruits in, in more comparison with each other. And I'm going to look first at um, the parami of generosity. This is the one that's listed first in all the lists. And it's said that when people came to the Buddha for spiritual teachings, he kind of took it in four stages. First he said, learn how to be generous. That's foundational. Um, being generous, that sort of open-handed attitude toward others, it's the exact opposite of the closed-inness on a solidified sense of self that I have to protect and, and look out for number one and all. It's sort of like the generosity is the exact opposite of that position that's so antithetical to spiritual growth. Um, so he told him first to be generous. Then he said learn to be moral. Kind of interesting that he put generosity before morality. Then he said, learn how to concentrate your mind. And in the West now, we mostly practice in a way that develops both concentration and mindful awareness at the same time. But it was a tradition up until the early 19th century um, when, when Theravada and Vipassana was mostly a monastic practice. Um, the monastics would spend some years just doing what's called concentrative meditation where you choose an object and just hold your mind on the single object to deepen and develop concentration. They would work with the um, loving-kindness practice, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, or work with focusing on colored discs. There are a number of different types of these practices listed in um, Buddhist lore and in the Vasudhi Magga, the sort of the manual of Buddhist meditation. Um, and then, only then, when their mind was reasonably concentrated, would he teach them the insight or Vipassana practice. But in this fourth stage of, of practice, generosity was first and foremost to be learned. Now, this, of course, the, the fruits of the spirit analog is the Christian idea of, of charity, um, which is an open-handed attitude toward others rather than clinging to what I might call mind. Um, the Buddhist teachings say that generosity should be practiced to make all beings happy without checking whether you consider them worthy or not. So um, you're generous to people you don't approve of as well as people that you do approve of. You're generous just because you might see a call to be generous or a need out there or something and you respond um, openly. Being generous celebrates our very real oneness because it bends us to meet other people's needs as if they were our own. And then this 
in turn strengthens our sense of oneness with each other. The Buddha said that if we truly understood the power of giving, we wouldn't let a single meal go by without sharing. It's one of the lovely benefits of owning a pet. Even if you live alone, if you have a pet, there's always some being there that you can feed. And, and it's, um, it's just a fringe benefit of having a pet. Um, it's, it's interesting that mental health professionals, which psychology was my specialty at the university, um, for older folks at least, uh, those who own pets live longer and are more mentally healthy than those who don't. So that's a good idea anyway. I, by the way, have four lovely cats who share my house with me. The, the Buddhist teachings speak of three kinds of giving. First, there's a very reluctant, beggarly sort of giving when um, you give away what you really no longer care to have for yourself or the worst of what you have, just sort of grudgingly giving something. And if that's the only way a person is capable of giving, they're urged to do that because it's at least a start. And then the second way of giving is called friendly giving. And then you share with others a quality of what you would like to have for yourself. So you're, it's more on a, a par. What, what I would like, I'm willing to share with others. And then finally, what's called regal giving. And um, to meet the needs of others, you would willingly deprive yourself with regal giving. Um, to develop generosity, there's a practice that some Buddhists undertake of a time-limited vow to every time I have the serious thought of giving, I'll give. Now, if you're really honest with yourself, because I, I really think this is kind of a universal thing. I haven't yet met anybody who insisted that they haven't done this at least once in their life. If you're really honest with yourself, you'll have to admit there were times that you felt an urge to give, and then you talked yourself out of it. I mean, that's just the kind of thing that we do sometimes. I, I feel this impulse to... Ah, uh, really, the tsunami, tsunami victims needed more money, and eh, well, maybe not a hundred dollars, maybe only fifty, or maybe well, everybody else is giving to this one. I'll wait and give to something. You know how you can talk yourself out of it. Well, if you take that vow, see, you sort of locked yourself in. If the thought comes, you you follow through when you want to start talking yourself out of it, and the more you follow through on a virtuous action the stronger it grows in your being and the more you're, you're listening to that prompting of Demoja to be generous and then the more generosity develops in you, the more you act on it. Now, of course, um, the notion of Christian charity has the same kind of connotations. Um, John of the Cross, my mystic who I told you that I like, said, one act done in charity is more precious in God's sights than any visions that you could have. Now, he lived in a time where having visions was kind of important to Christians. He didn't think much of having visions, but he did think much of acting charitably. And I have a few other ways in which he urged people to regal giving. He said, don't refuse anything you possess, even though you may need it. And then he rather poetically described what he considered a spirit that was ripe um, with, with giving love. 
a quote, a trait of valiant souls, generous spirits, and unselfish hearts is their manner to give even to the extent of giving themselves. So here you have a clear parallel between one of the fruits of the spirit and one of the Buddhist paramis, the generosity and the Christian charity. It's essentially the same virtue that we're asked to develop. I've said more about that one than I intend to say about any of the others, chiefly because the Buddha gave it such primacy. But then the second step that he said people had to undertake when he was giving spiritual teachings was morality. And morality um, is a sila, is the Pali word, is another of these paramis. And of course, it parallels the Christian fruit of goodness. Um, to be moral is to behave in a good fashion. Um, the, the basic precepts of Buddhist morality, um, are, are, with the possible exception of the use of intoxicants, the first four certainly are things that, that virtually all traditions have in their moral code. You don't deliberately inflict harm on anyone or, or, or kill. You don't take things that aren't given to you or that don't belong to you. You refrain from using sexual energies in a way that harms yourself or others. And, and you practice right speech. You don't lie and slander and, and, and use your speech in other ways that, that inflict harm in the world. Um, and the fifth one, of course, refraining um, from using substances that cloud the mind and, and, and mess up judgment um, is the last one. Um, being moral with a basic morality like that um, brings what is the Buddha called the first level of happiness that we come to in practice. Because when we're moral, we don't suffer from guilt and remorse anymore. And a mind that's full of guilt and remorse is not a happy mind. It's, it's a mind that's suffering somewhat. Um, it also is very helpful to other people, too, because if other people know you to be a truly moral person, then they know they don't have to fear you. And that's um, in a world where there's lots of fear floating around among people. To be the kind of presence in the world that other people feel they don't have to fear um, is a great boon. Now, of course, the um, Judeo-Christian Ten Commandments, um, once you get past the, the three that, or four that talk about behavior toward God, the remainder of them parallel pretty closely um, these five Buddhist precepts. And as I said, all the, the major traditions have essentially the same um, morality. Now, of this fruit of goodness, um, John of the Cross said, Eat not in forbidden pastures, because blessed are they who hunger and thirst for justice. He also said in another place, Blessed are they who, setting aside their own pleasure and inclination, consider things according to reason and justice before doing them. So another parallel then, the fruit of the spirit of goodness and the Buddhist parami of morality, essentially the same thing that they're talking about. The third parami is renunciation and corresponds to the Christian, Christian fruit of temperance or self-control. 
Now, the first thing, of course, that we have to let go of is what actually causes harm to ourselves or others, and basic morality covers that. But then um, renunciation goes farther than that. A second step in renunciation is letting go of things that might be conducive to harming or that might help bend us in slightly wrong directions even though they're not directly um, wrong action in themselves. And um, part of this are, are things like the practice of, of knowing how far we can let ourselves go in certain situations, what kind of, of places we might need to avoid because they would be an occasion of drawing uh, bad behavior out of us. Reminds me of um, when I was interning in clinical psychology. Of course, the interns got the people that the staff members didn't want to deal with. We got the ones that they didn't want to work with because we were the lowly interns. And one judge who didn't understand um, alcohol at all um, had a DUI in front of him. And instead of sending him to a 12-step program or something, he gave him the option, uh, three months in the slammer or 12 sessions of psychotherapy. Well, of course, he chose psychotherapy, and um, I won him. And, of course, that is not the treatment of choice for, for this problem. And the very first thing he said when, when he walked in was, I want you to know the problem isn't that I have a problem with alcohol. The problem's that I have to go past a tavern on my way home from work. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, that, that, uh, for him, of course, the, find a different route home from work, for pity's sake, if you can't keep yourself from going into the tavern. But we all have those places in our lives that, you know, if I get myself in that situation, I'm likely to get myself in trouble. So that's a level of renunciation, to, to stay away from those. Some of the vows that the, the monks and the nuns take in the Theravadan tradition uh, sort of build in keeping people away from things that are a problem for a lot of people. Um, like um, frivolous um, places of frivolous uh, amusement and um, for controlling appetite, not, not eating solid food after midday and um, uh, such, issue, such things as that are built into some of the vows because they help um, take care of situations that could become problem ones if, if one let them go. So that's a second level of renunciation and when we, when we practice that level of renunciation, it also helps us learn how to say a helpful no to ourselves so that we'll be able to say no when we really absolutely need to. So it's a sort of training of your mind that you don't always need to go toward a pleasant, innocent inclination at the time that is fraught with the possibility of turning um, bad on us. Um, John of the Cross had a, some, uh, a very interesting list. He talked about the problem for spiritual development of people who find certain little things that they won't let go of important to them. And he listed the habit of speaking a lot, attachment to a particular room or to a particular way of having your food prepared. Um, and so these little kinds of things like this that we we sort of come to think of as needs rather than wants. Um, and if, 
trust me, and I'm sure Mark knows for leading retreats too, you will run into those people on retreats who, this food won't work, I have to have. That I have to have the, the one I just led in Scotland. Um, we specifically told the to cook vegetarian cooking because that lighter food is, is much better when you're, when you're, and he was doing a nice job for us. And he got a letter from someone, she absolutely had to have some meat at least every other day, and she had to have chicken that night. And he was like, nobody is going to die if they go 10 days without meat, you know, but um, you run into, this attachment to having a certain kind of food or having things the way you want. Um, these are little areas of renunciation that we can look into and figure out the things in our own lives that, hey, you know, I get a little annoyed or upset when this doesn't go this way. That shows that there's a little attachment to that, and maybe that's an area that I can work on um, for renunciation to to bring it to a slightly deeper level of being able to say no to myself um, sometimes. Um, of course, beyond that then, um, eventually the, the highest, um, uh, I have something, excuse me. The highest renunciation, of course, that we eventually um, have to come to is renunciation of the sense of separate selfhood. And maybe someday, um, I have a talk on that in relation to John of the Cross, too. Maybe someday I'll come in here with that one. Um, but um, that's, that's the highest that we have to let go of. Now, um, it's not renunciation for renunciation's sake, of course. It's renunciation to be able to learn how to say the no so we can keep ourselves out of trouble when we need to. Um, and the renunciation has to be not only for material things, but also for clinging to uh, such things as, as a particularly delightful meditation experiences. Um, I've actually had people, more than, more than one, about a half dozen people tell me they realized that they had spent years trying to recreate a meditation experience they had that they really liked. Now, just exactly how did I sit and just, you know, and what a waste of time, but also what a kind of greed and, and reluctance to, hey, when it happened, it happened. When it's gone, it's gone. The, the refusal to accept that kind of, which is life, it's the way it works. So um, we have to give up harmful things first, then we relinquish things that are conducive to harming, then we let go of these little tiny things that we might be attached to just to learn how to be able to let go, and then finally, as I said, the when, when we finally can relinquish that sense of separate selfhood and there's no longer this me that has to be coddled and, and protected and defended and enhanced and all of that, then, then things go a lot easier. As one um, Sri Lankan Buddhist teacher put it, big self, big problem. No self, no problem. And that's, that's about what it boils down to. Um, philosopher Sartre said, hell is other people. And you know, he was wrong, but he was close to right, because hell 
is seeing others as something other and distinct and seeing oneself as separate and apart from those others. And that truly is, in a way, hell. So here we have again this parallel between Buddhist renunciation and, and uh, the, the Christian um, self-control or mortification, it's sometimes called, mortification, the killing off of particular desires. That's what you're mortifying, and that means killing, you know. So here's another clear parallel between a parami and a fruit. Now, the parami of patience and in the list of Christian fruits of the spirits, it's called patience or long-suffering. So they actually use the same word here. Now, patience connotes a willingness to be worked on. Just as you might make yourself the patient of a doctor or a dentist or other professional, um, in meditation, we let the practice work on us. Um, and it does, if we, if we allow it to. But we have to be patient. If we're not patient and willing to accept the experiences that our meditation practice brings up in us and be with them in a balanced way, um, nothing is going to happen in our practice. If we run away and, are, and every time it turns unpleasant and refuse to be with the, the, the cleansing and healing action of the practice in us. But patience in both traditions goes beyond just what might happen when you're in, in meditation. Um, there's lots of ways we have to learn to be patient with what happens in the external world. Um, patience regarding the habits or flaws or inclinations of others that impinge on us unpleasantly. Um, environmental inconveniences, things like headaches and like the horrendous traffic I had to deal with getting here, which had me get here, I think, about two minutes to seven, and I had a cup of tea before I came and sat with you to, to, to make my body happier. But um, patience with all of those kinds of things that life itself um, deals us. And, of course, there's always little things like accidents and sickness, which we all... We all have sickness at some times, and most people have at least one accident to deal with during their life. So all these little annoyances of just living are also opportunities and occasions where we have to learn to practice this parami or fruit of patience, whichever way you would look at it, and have to accept these things in our life just like we accept um, the meditation experiences that are healing us patiently. John of the Cross, again, because I'm here to show you how John is a Buddhist. John of the Cross said, you need to learn to suffer annoyances with inner patience. And then another one, virtue and strength of soul grow and are confirmed in the trials of patience. And he also said that patience is a good indicator of spiritual progress. Quote, quote, if you have more patience in suffering and more forbearance in going without satisfaction, the sign is there of becoming more proficient in virtue. So, next part of me, truthfulness. And I relate it to the Christian fruit of the spirit of humility. 
the word humility comes from humus, which means earth, and uh, being down to earth about oneself, being truthful uh, about the nature of one's being is basically what humility comes down to. Now, the parami of truthfulness goes beyond the morality of not telling lies. I mean, that's covered by basic morality. But when you look at, at truthfulness as a parami, um, your whole being, in a way, is to become truth. That means that you're to get yourself in accord with the true reality of things. Um, including the, the reality of your, of your own being, of course, and acknowledging and understanding um, the nature of your own being and accepting it. Um, it also means that if you give your word on anything or pledge anything, um, that you will follow through so that you bring to fruition in reality whatever you say you're going to, which is a form of truthfulness. Your word means something when you say that you're going to do something or you pledge to do something, that you'll follow through on it. Now, of course, this truthfulness and humility includes being in touch with unpleasant truths about ourselves that it's more comfortable not to see. Um, we very easily can slip into what we psychologists call the defense mechanisms, uh, which are subtle little lies that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Um, often there are phony reasons for bad behavior that we've engaged in. For example, well, I only told her for her own sake when you really enjoyed making somebody else feel bad, but you justify it with that. Or um, everybody does it. That justifies bad behavior because you tell yourself everyone does it. Or um, he needed to hear the truth when you say something hurtful to another person. So these little subtle ways that we justify ourselves and defend ourselves and don't look at what our true motives are are opposed to truthfulness and humility also. Um, a quote that I cannot remember where I saw, and I can't find anyone who's been able to tell me, so if any of you know, tell me. Um, it's a quote I absolutely love. It says, when memory says I did it, and pride says I could never have done it, pride wins in every case. And I, I, that's so often so true of, of human beings. But of course, um, if we're really doing serious spiritual practice, we can't let pride win. Um, when memory says, I did it, we kind of have to acknowledge that that's the way it is. Now, as Christians see humility, it's recognizing the truth of one's being, which covers pretty much a lot of this ground that the parami of truthfulness is covering. Uh, some people don't understand humility, and they think it means kind of a groveling, self-despising, but that's not true at all of it. It's just being down to earth, recognizing the truth of your being. self-knowledge, which of course the practice will bring us if we, if we let it. Um, when I lead retreats for people working 12-step programs, which is another of the retreats that I, I lead as well as a lot for Christian people, um, 
they qu they very very quickly learn that it will take your inventory for you. I mean, you sit, and anything that was slightly off since you sat the last time will often just come in and hit you um, in the face. And um, this self-knowledge that's part of truthfulness, um, I have a quote from uh, Teresa of Avila, actually, who was a contemporary of John of the Cross, and another, she was a Carmelite nun, and he was a Carmelite friar. She said, the room of self-knowledge, how necessary this room is, even for those who have been brought to very high places. So we never outgrow our need for deepening our self-knowledge. John of the Cross actually said that self-knowledge is the first requirement for advancing to knowledge of God. So he taught that without self-knowledge, it's, you're not going to you're not going to know God, and of course, in Christian terms, that's spiritual fruition. Um, so um, he talked about the rough periods in practice, which have correspondence to stages in Buddhist practice. He called them the dark nights, and he said the first and chief benefit of them is that it causes knowledge of oneself of which one was previously ignorant, and um, that's so true. The practice will do that. It will bring us this kind of self-knowledge that we need. Of course, most of the things that we see about ourselves in practice are bad news because the things we don't mind knowing about ourselves, we already know. So the new things we're going to learn are the ones that we really didn't much care to know, but they can get thrown up in our face. So anyway, that's your truthfulness and humility. Resolution and faithfulness. A Buddhist resolution as a parami and Christian faithfulness. This is a stick-to-it attitude when faced with difficulty. Being constant in spiritual work even when it's not to our liking as faithfully as we are when it's pleasant. Um, we avoid many necessary experiences if we take a vacation from spiritual work when we just don't feel like doing it. Um, I have had people say to me, well, some days I just can't seem to get with sitting, so then I should just wait and try again the next day. And I say, no, no, you shouldn't, because what you learn from the difficult times is extremely important, and it's part of developing this, this resolution and this faithfulness to your practice. Again, a quote from John of the Cross that captures this beautifully. Never give up your works for a want of satisfaction and delight in them. Neither should you carry them out merely because of the satisfaction or delight they give you. Otherwise, it will be impossible for you to gain constancy. So, I mean, there it is in a nutshell. Um, the later ones here I have less to say, and since we're getting to the end of the time allotted me, it's good. Loving kindness and gentleness. Of course, you're... Probably most of you are familiar with the Pali word metta, which is often translated as loving kindness, but sometimes it's translated as gentle friendliness too. So this Buddhist loving kindness and Christian gentleness, again, are, are parallels between a parami and a fruit. It, it's wishing others well, universally, not different with regard to different people and a kind of unshakable kindness that wants to make you helpful to all. 
It's, of course, one of what are called the Brahma-viharas, or four heavenly states of mind in, in the Buddhist um, tradition. And, of course, this loving-kindness is not supposed to be just a warm, mellow feeling we have, but it's to be effective in action also. And doing some loving-kindness practice, which is available in, in our tradition, uh, helps to develop this quality. But, of course, simply doing your insight practice does, too, because when we get in touch with the, the suffering in our own beings, it makes us sensitive to care about others and, and their suffering, and compassion, in a way, is one face of the loving-kindness. It's another of these Brahma-vihara practices. I have a few quotes from, from John on this. Don't refuse work even though it seems you can't do it. Um, never listen to talk about the weaknesses of others. Don't complain about anyone. These are a few ways we can help practice loving kindness. Um, Teresa of Avila said, Strive as much as you can to be affable and understanding in such a way that everyone will love your conversation and not be frightened and intimidated by you. Um, another parami and fruit, the parami of equanimity and the Christian fruit of peace. Equanimity is another of those four heavenly states of mind. Um, it's being in such acceptance of your experience that you're not pulled off into either greed or aversion or any kind of reactivity, no matter what is going on. Of course, highly developed equanimity signifies a highly developed practice. It's one of the last things to, to get fully in place. And, of course, the quality of peace that's the Christian fruit of the spirit is essentially the same thing. Your your mind is at rest and okay with everything, regardless of what's happening. Um, the Buddhist tradition lists kinds of alterations of fortune that we should be the same, regardless of which end we're on. Pleasure or pain, gain or loss, praise or blame, and companionship or isolation or any other conditions that you might encounter. Um, Teresa of Avila wrote, to seek that holy peace that makes us, while remaining completely secure and tranquil, venture out to war against all worldly kinds of peace. In other words, that peace that is the acceptance, the okayness with everything. Um, John had a prescription for coming to this. He said, be satisfied with emptiness, for this is necessary to reach the highest tranquility and peace of, of spirit. And then he said, a person has truly mastered all things who is not moved to joy by the satisfaction they afford are saddened by their insipidness. So that's almost a direct tied to the, the Buddhist alterations of fortune that you're supposed to remain the same with, no matter what. We're getting there. Two more to go. Buddhist diligence and Christian longanimity. 
Now, diligence, often translated effort or energy, but I like the term diligence better, appears in more Buddhist lists of necessary attributes than any other quality. I mean, if we don't do it, nothing's going to happen. And diligence is what gets you doing it. And it's much like longanimity, which the spirit's fruit of longanimity means that the vigor and valor and wholeheartedness of proper effort. And that's exactly what the, the uh, diligence, effort, or energy. The Pali word actually is virya, which literally translates virility. Um, that doesn't quite do it for me, and I imagine for a number of you. So to translate it other than virility works better. So diligence is the way I've come up with it. John of the Cross said, reflect how necessary it is to walk by the path of holy rigor. Again, when the occasion of practicing some mortification is presented to slack persons, they die to their good works by ceasing to accomplish them and lose the spirit of perseverance, which would give them spiritual sweetness and interior consolation. So, then he goes on, God, because of course he uses God as a causative agent, God does not want sluggish or cowardly souls. And to avoid this, God helps so that with a little diligence we can advance in every virtue. This again brings in that notion of, of grace, that you get carried. You, you, you put effort in and you do get carried some, and this is true in both traditions. So... That's diligence and longanimity. And then there's one parami left, which is wisdom, and one fruit left to discuss, which is joy. You might say wisdom and joy, how, how do those come together? Well, wisdom is what finally liberates us and finally frees us from our suffering and thus brings us the joy of spiritual fruition. So the fruit of the spirit of joy corresponds quite well to wisdom. Um, this fully right understanding that wisdom is, seeing things as they truly are, is our final joy. John of the Cross recognized an intimate connection between purification of our beings, wisdom, and joy. He said, the purest suffering brings with it the purest and most intimate knowing and consequently the purest and highest joy because it's a knowing from further within. And the suffering he's referring to here is the suffering that comes when we're worked on in our spiritual practice and as I said he described difficult stages in the course of practice just like there's some difficult ones in the Buddhist practice he also said wisdom enters through love silence and mortification contemplation infuses love and wisdom into us according to our capacity and necessity it illumines us and purges us of our ignorance this is John of the Cross speaking. Sounds very Buddhist, but it's John of the Cross. So both, both uh, John of the Cross and the Buddhist tradition agree that our meditation practice, which is what John calls contemplation, brings with it the highest spiritual wisdom and joy. Note that John also said love and wisdom enter. 
a very close correspondence to the two wings of Buddhist practice, wisdom and compassion. Um, likewise, Buddhist thought holds that wisdom, or insight, knowledge, purges us of, of defilements, of which ignorance is the main one, helps us understand what's beneficial and what causes harm, and brings an intuitive knowing that's effective in action. So both, both John and the Buddhist tradition emphasize, though, they're not speaking about wisdom that comes from any kind of thinking or studying, but the wisdom that is the outcome of the purification of our beings through spiritual practice, the working out all the ugly states of mind that, that we tend sometimes to cling to and what you could call latent karmic residue, the gunk around the heart. It's the getting rid of that stuff that the practice does for us that brings the wisdom, brings our joy. So in our work with the Paramis are the fruits of the spirit then. We're led on and encouraged by the indwelling Holy Spirit, or alternatively, in Buddhist terms, by the force of accumulated merit in our hearts. That's the Dhammoja, the essence of Dhamma. And we often find ourselves carried, finding the work being done in us by a power greater than our own power that we've put into it. And um, I close with um, a blessing for us. May we all do what we must do so that we can be truly surrendered and be able to be carried by the unfolding Dhamma or the grace of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I don't know if there's time for questions. Did I talk too long for questions or take a few questions? Well, I was under an hour <laughs> at least. D H A M M O J A. That was a small question. The larger question I have. Oh, more. Because there's two. There were two questions. Uh, for you, which came first in your life and practice of spirituality, the, the Catholicism and then the meditation, or the meditation and then the Catholicism? You're talking about my life? I am. Oh, I was born a Catholic Christian, and... Um, I've had an off-on relationship with that across the whole of my life. Um, abandoned it when I was 16 because my parents had a very um, magical, um, well, a very unsupportable brand of, of religion that I couldn't handle. Uh, found it again at a Jesuit college with an intellectually respectable religion. Uh, lost it again. And so anyway, my history's um, finally one nun one tart old nun, I, she introduced me to prison ministry, which has been very important to me, bringing meditation into prisons and jails. And she introduced me to going into prisons and jails because that was the work that she, that she did a lot. And she said, Mary Jo, it's so simple. They're your family. Don't let a bunch of silly old men in Rome deprive you of your family. If they say something that makes sense, listen to them. When they talk nonsense, don't. It's that simple, she said. So that brought me back again. Oh, family, okay. I mean, I'm, it's the family I was born into. But then um, 
Uh, I mean, there have been problems, lots of, you know a lot of them. They've been in the newspapers, some of them. But, I mean, problems like 95% of the wealth in parts of Latin America controlled by the church. I mean, there's something wrong, you know, with that. And it's just, so it's, it's an on-off. But um, I found, I first found Hindu yoga. That was my introduction um, to Eastern traditions. Um, there was, some of you may have heard of, of um, Usher Budarya, who taught at the University of Minnesota. And I was uh, both do, doing my graduate work and teaching in night school at that time. And I was teaching psychology of religion in night school at the university. And my students finally convinced me I should go here and talk. And um, my attitude was terrible. I'm a Christian. What can a pagan teach me? I mean, I had the worst mind of all that you could you could hardly believe the mind I had. But I finally went, and I mean, I was captivated. And then for I, at the time that that happened, I was on the outs with the church, although I still considered myself a Christian. And so he became my major teacher for the next 12 years, and it, that at which was the point that I found Vipassana. So. Um, so that's sort of the progression. Okay. You said you had another. <laughs> oh, I thought you said you had two additional to Demoja. Uh, oh, just, just just two. Well, I could ask now. So then your the path of training that is like 10, 12 years, or I I didn't quite understand when when you started your the path In the 80s. Okay. Started teaching in 87 with Joseph's blessing. I have no more questions. Thank you. <laughs> Could you say something about the Holy Spirit? Like, mm -hmm. like, like what exactly that is? What exactly that means? What does the Holy Spirit mean to Christians? Well, well Christians um, speak of, and, and believe me, uh, if this is three persons in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they they say the Father is like God foundational, maybe, and the 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 Son is begotten by the Father and is completely God as the Father is, and the love that flows between the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the. But you know. Um, some of the people who have done Buddhist-Christian dialogue have done some really interesting things with this. And I myself, from, from some things that John had said, I said, well, no. Now, and, and then I found some of this written work by some of these scholars. And I thought, ah, just what I had sort of figured out. The way you can look at it is, okay, so you got God. God completely empties out the entirety of Godness into the Son. So you have a, a completely emptying out Father and the Son completely empty of all but what is received from the Father and then the gift is given back which is that love between them. So it's it's like um, eventually um, Masao Abi wrote this book called The Emptying God and he starts talking about the Christian Trinity in exactly the same way. It's the idea of the, the total emptying out and um, being totally empty of except receiving the fullness of God. And I, well, okay, so how about the, the, the being who's 
Consciousness is no longer trailing any clingings to anything, emptied out of all of that and then can receive the fullness of, of, of Nibbana and die into Nibbana. And I thought, you know, they're not that far different language, but maybe not that far different in, at an experiential level, you know. There have been tons of books written, though, about the whole idea of the inner workings of the Trinity and... Um, so I can't do I can't do too much for you in, on on all of, but the way they they put it is that the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. That's how they word it. And somebody down there was, I know, I, way back there. Now you have to speak loud since you're way back, and since I got here late, I didn't get my hearing aid put in. Um, I got that it's about John of the Cross and the rest of the question. Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? Um, he was a 16th century Spanish Carmelite monk. And he and Teresa of Avila, his contemporary, was actually 28 years older than he was, but the two of them together reformed the Carmelite religious order, which had gotten quite lax and sort of... And they both were very, very deep meditators, and they wrote, uh, both of them wrote a lot about spiritual practice and, and, and spiritual life. John was never tremendously healthy. One of my Carmelite, fr and, and I, I teach the retreats with Carmelite friars since this, and, and they're, they're, they sit Vipassana, that's the meditation practice that they do, by the way, even though they're Catholic monks. Um, one of them calls John a love child, and, and that's because um, his wealthy father was disowned by his family when he fell in love with a poor weaver and married her, So, and John was the third of three sons that were born to them, and he was a love child because the father gave up all the wealth of his family to marry the woman that, that he loved. But the family lived in dire poverty, and John's father died when John was quite young, and he went to a charity school. But he was shown as having promised, so they trained him for the priesthood, and then he joined the Carmelites because he wanted a more contemplative order. Um, uh, Teresa was, well, you asked about John. Anyway, they, they, they worked together. He died when he was just 49 years old. And his writings, that's what uh, Thomas Merton said, you know, take away the Christian language, it's Buddhism. And I told you my daughter, Rebecca, Mom, this is Dhamma, this is Dhamma. The, the parallels are incredible, just incredible. I have a stable of about four dozen talks on different aspects of the, the similarities. I have a question. Would you consider Jesus a Bodhisattva? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think Jesus was probably no more divine than the Buddha was. And, of course, some people consider the Buddha divine and some consider him not divine. But if Jesus says, when you see me, you see the Father. When you see the Father, you see me. Well, the Buddha said, when you see the Dhamma, you see me. When you see me, you see the Dhamma. I mean... So one tradition takes it as a claim to divinity and the other doesn't. Um, I, I, I think that there's a lot in the teachings of Jesus before the church has got a hold of it that is quite, quite excellent teaching. And certainly one of the high spiritual 
teachers that, that the world has known. Um, is that good enough? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I leave open the question of who's divine and who isn't. Um, Sri Aurobindo, who's a Vedantic, uh, was a Vedantic mystic, died in 1950. Um, I love the, write, the spiritual writings of Sri Aurobindo. When he wrote about Avatar, which is divine incarnation, he would always he would refer to the Krishnahood, Buddhahood, and Christhood of the avatars. So he picked those three out as who he was going to consider an avatar or a divine incarnation. Um, this, this infancy stories. And, and the birth stories among all of them are so similar. Even hum, either human imagination does a really good job of drumming up similar stories about people that they later take to be great spiritual teachers, or the heavens so arrange things that circumstances are similar for them. I mean, like both, I, I used to do a real number on my introductory religious studies students down at Mankato State because that's kind of southern Minnesota is kind of like a Bible Belt of the North and they come in with such closed minds and of course I already confessed to the closed mind I had at one time you know and I want to shake them up a little so I say I want to tell you about a man who lived some thousands of years ago um, he came down from heaven at the right appointed time and um, conception uh, in, in his mother's womb was, was miraculous and her male protector was made to understand that it was okay and when he was born, wise people came and predicted a great future for him and I go on and then about the choosing disciples and working miracles and healing and everything. So finally after I do a long spiel on this I say would you follow such a man? Oh yes, yes of course they say because they think I'm talking about Jesus and then I say congratulations you've just become a Buddhist. <laughs> um, and it's, it's kind of it was a dirty trick to play but it was a way to kind of try to crack open a closed mind a little bit, you know? You brought up the birth idea. This is a little bit different from what we came here to hear, I guess, but could you talk about the Bible's birth story of Jesus versus the Koran's birth story? Uh, no. <laughs> I can't because I don't know enough about the Korans. Many years ago, I made a, a, a real attempt at the Koran, and I made some dent in it, but not much. And it's on my now I need to do list, but I, I'm not familiar enough with it to. Just such a different story. I'm just curious. No, I'm not familiar enough to comment on it. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I kind of looked you up a little bit online, and it's easy to find out your uh, Easter practices and stuff, but. I could not find it anywhere, all the way to the end of the internet, like what um, type of Catholic, what order of nuns you are. Um, I joined the Sisters for Christian Community, which is, um, uh, it's not under Rome. It's a sisterhood that didn't put themselves under Rome, so it's not considered a canonical order. And um, it, it's only a little over 30 years old, and it was founded by a Ph.D. sociologist who wanted a form of religious commitment that made sense in the contemporary world. And um, we're mostly feminists. We're um, scattered all over in terms of what we consider our, our things to be. So what you would look, if you want to learn more about them, is Sisters for Christian Community 
would you believe I have no idea what's on? I have never once put my name in a search engine and looked to see what's on the Internet about me. I, 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 I don't want to know because I figure some of it would distress me. Some, you know, I just don't want to know, so I've never done it. But people have occasionally meant referred to different things that they've seen, but I have no idea other than what people have told me. So, so I don't know what it says anywhere. I found it very odd that it kept leaving that piece out everywhere. Oh, well. See, I'm not the person who put any of it on, so I don't know who put it on or where it got came from or what have you. You know, I just don't know. Thank you, Mary Jo, for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks.